Welcome to the Unsettled Lives podcast. On this podcast, we'll be dusting off the history of Black communities in America. This bi-weekly podcast is about unearthing the hidden narratives of land loss, urban renewal, disinvestment, and gentrification among Black Americans. What's up? My name is Celia Burke, and this is the Unsettled Lives Podcast, Episode 5. How are you doing? I'm pretty tired myself, coming off a couple of trips over the past couple of weeks. I know times are crazy right now, and I've managed to keep from getting sick so far. Knock on wood. I think like many of us that I'm going to lay low for a little while as we continue to move through this world of ups and downs and unpredictability. One of my latest trips was in the desert. I spent some time at Joshua Tree National Park in California. It was my first time there. And let me tell you, so beautiful, amazing. It was really meaningful to be able to explore that part of the world, which is so different from anywhere I've ever lived and really been before. I got so dehydrated, though, which was awful. And I didn't really feel the effects of that until after wandering around the park. So in the moment, I had a lot of fun exploring. Knowing that I'd be in the desert early this year inspired this week's topic. But before we get to that, have you talked to a neighbor today? Or since the last episode, episode four. In the past few weeks, I've been baking a lot of cookies, rosemary chocolate chip to be specific, and giving them to neighbors super domestic, right? But it really works. Even the gesture can be appreciated. I genuinely like to bake. um, So I find that I don't feel like it's a burden or anything, or like it's an, um, an immense amount of pressure to do something like that. I actually started to realize that I actually should do it more often because I do enjoy it. And because I don't need to eat everything that I make, the neighbors can benefit from it. (laughs) Just remember to try out your own food before giving it out. So I, I knew that this would maybe be successful for folks who were receiving it. And one thing that I started doing later with neighbor give outs was writing out the ingredients to be sure folks can address any allergies that they may have. They can always ask you too when you give it to them, which can be a really good conversation starter. Or when you're giving it to them, you can just share them in conversation. And that can also spark more conversations. So here is to finding creative ways to connect in 2022, even if we, especially if we need to continue to keep each other safe during this pandemic. Okay, off to the West we go. 
Today's topic is a little town called Blackdom, New Mexico. Black people in New Mexico? Why, yes. Yes, I know. Before we get started on this journey, let's acknowledge the first and still existing stewards of the land. I used native land maps again for this information, which I'll include a link to in the show notes. This is the territory of the Mescalero Apache. It's one of the three sub-tribes of the Apache tribe, which also include the Lipan and Chiracahua. Sorry, I'm so sorry for this mispronunciation. Um, they currently live on a 463,000 acre reservation. The Apache tribe has been known as nomadic hunters and warriors, so much so that they defended their homelands fiercely against the Spanish, Mexican, and eventually the American settlers who moved to their territory. There's so much more to learn about these people and I have a link to the website and we'll share that in the show notes. They are still an active tribe and I did say three sub-tribes. I believe there are more than, than that, but within this particular region, the three sub-tribes are the Mescalero, the Lipan, and Chiracuhua. Apologies again, because I'm probably mispronounced many of those. Okay, on to Blackdom. Blackdom is known as the first exclusive Negro settlement in New Mexico territory. At the time, New Mexico territory was what it was called. It was not yet a state. And it was considered amongst many other territories in that region to be the Wild West. So it was a really violent place, not an easy place to live. I would say violence is both attributed to the weather and the conditions, as well as the people and the way that people could be to one another in those conditions. The time that we are looking at right now was the beginning of the 20th century. The nearest well-known New Mexico town is Roswell, New Mexico, and it is um, 18 miles northeast of that city, of, of the city of Blackdom, rather. And oh yeah, that Roswell. I would insert the X-Files music here, but I will not do that. Despite my earlier joke about Black folks in New Mexico and other Southwestern states, is what I was implying, really, there is a historical legacy of Black people who were pioneers and explorers trappers and cowboys in the West. When we talk about the time um, as the era known as Reconstruction was ending and had ended, we're talking about the Great Migration often where Black folks were leaving the South to find new opportunities and to leave violence. Migration of Black folks to the North 
is what is most highlighted to these major cities like Detroit and Chicago, um, New York, even Pittsburgh. But it could be really difficult despite the opportunities because they could be met with unemployment and discrimination does not have a border. As much as we talk about the violence of the South, discrimination in the North was very strong and very present. It just showed up in different ways. But violence was not unheard of, obviously, in the North as well. Many Black people looked at the West as a new start with lots of possibility. This was helped by the Homestead Act, which was not racially discriminatory. There were a lot of very, I would say, challenging guidelines. There was a lot of stipulation around staking claim of land and taking care of the land in very specific ways in order to adhere to the guidelines, to the rules of the Homestead Act. Not much is known about Blackdom and its founder, Frank Boyer. We do know Frank Boyer was from Georgia. Frank's father, Henry Boyer, was a free man from Pullum, Georgia, and he served as a wagoneer in the Army for Missouri Volunteers fighting in the Mexican-American War. During his time as a wagoneer, he was impressed by the Southwest and conveyed his stories of the landscape and the experience to his son, Frank. Henry was never able to return to the Southwest during his lifetime, but his stories stuck with Frank and he was considering the Southwest as he was considering freedom from the Jim Crow South. Frank himself was a graduate of Morehouse University and I wanna give some love to yet another historically black college. And he became a teacher as well as a preacher. It's also been said that he was a Buffalo soldier and Buffalo soldiers, I'm sorry y'all, there's gonna be a little bit of background noise because people are just honking right now. Um, but I'll come back to a Buffalo soldier was a black American soldier who mainly served on the Western frontier following the American Civil War. So they're very um, well known. There's a lot of imagery and mythology surrounding the Buffalo soldiers who were indeed real people. I just wanna bring this up. I have a, a, a very long history of um, military service ship in my family. Um, and I think a lot about the tension that there was between Buffalo soldiers, these black American soldiers and the indigenous people because Buffalo soldiers were helpful in pushing indigenous people off of the land that needed to be settled by Americans who were moving west. And so that is very complicated because I'm talking a lot about Black ownership of land, Black relationship with the land, the need to be somewhere stable. And even though I, again, will say that I don't consider Black people, Black Americans settlers, 
in the same sense that I would um, Europeans who came to this country, I will say that there is a very fraught, I imagine, relationship. And there are probably some very difficult memories of Buffalo soldiers that indigenous people may have passed along across the generations. And so that's something I just want to acknowledge because there is that complicated story. And I want us all to think about that and think about how that makes us feel. I know personally, it just makes me feel like nothing is clear in black and white. And it makes me think about why it's so important for solidarity between Black folks and Indigenous people in the United States and across the world. But I'm talking about the United States for now. I think those that solidarity is really important to have if we can build those relationships in a healthy way. Okay, that's my little spiel on the Buffalo Soldiers and what was perhaps a very challenging relationship. Back to Frank Boyer, our our leader. He felt that being educated was very important to being a leader. So Frank, as well as many Black Americans of that time, knew that education was essential and celebrated their ability to access education in the way that their ancestors their recent ancestors could not, their grandparents, maybe even living relatives could not. He was so inspired by creating a Black community, a a Black town. He first tried to start a Black city in Florida, and then he tried to start one in Putnam, Georgia. And those were not successful, but that did not deter him. Frank was married to Ella Gruder, and they had three sons and a daughter in Georgia. At this time, 1890 to 1900 is the time frame we're talking about. This was considered the most dangerous time for a Black man in America. And it's hard to wrap my head around that because being enslaved was incredibly dangerous and incredibly difficult. But there's something to be said about the specific type of violence towards free Black people and what white people in Jim Crow South and in other parts of the country felt entitled to do to Black men and to Black people overall when they were free and when they were no longer property. They're no longer of value. They weren't of value in a human way. They were of value as in regards to labor and as a commodity, which is awful, but that's what it was. And when they were free and that was no longer their position, it then became about this is another person to compete against in this economic system, especially in the South at this time. Without slavery, the the economy was in shambles. And so it was incredibly dangerous and incredibly scary, not only because, yes, there was that economic competition, but also, as I spoke about in episode four, um, there was this fear of Black men 
raping or even convincing a consensual relationship with with white women. And so this was a very scary time for black men. I think white men at the time would have argued it was a very scary time to them and maybe they were scared, but there wasn't an equal experience. White men could kill black men without consequence. White men could assault and rape black women without consequence. All black people were able to suffer without consequence. And that could not be something that a black person could do to a white person. A black person could not harm a white person without immediate consequence in the form of lynching typically. And even if there was no proof that a black person had harmed a white person, if they had been accused and if there were enough people who were willing to do something about it, quote unquote, then that was it. And there were no consequences for the white people at that time. So yes, extremely dangerous. This is the world that Frank Boyer is living in. Violence in Georgia around him. And I've heard a couple of different stories. I've heard that he was not a personal witness to any of the violence that was happening in his home state of Georgia. And I've also heard that he actively witnessed violence in his home state. And I think maybe there's some confusion about this because maybe he didn't witness a lynching per se, but he did witness the daily psychological violence and the, in the smaller minor violences of just being and existing as a black person in the South at the time. The violence that he may have witnessed and his dreams of the Southwest pushed him to seek out land out there. He left Ella and his children in Georgia to wait for him. He and one of his students named Dan Keyes decided to walk to New Mexico. And this, my friends, was nearly 2,000 miles. Can you imagine? Can you imagine? I like to walk. 2,000 miles? Nearly 2,000 miles. I cannot wrap my head around that. But that was what they did. They arrived in the Pecos River Valley outside of Roswell nearly a year later in 1898. I I cannot imagine what they experienced. I I wish that he wrote about what his experience walking from Georgia to New Mexico was like and what he encountered. But he made it safely. It took him nearly a year, which is incredible, but he made it. The location was on the direct route to the Dexter train station to the east and Apache land located west of the potential site. At the time, the land was barren. The landscape is described as desert prairie. So very dry (laughs) with a lot of grasses. The area received 12 to 13 inches of precipitation annually. So that was probably both rain and snow, maybe the occasional ice storm. 
They arrived at a time when there had been a string of wetter years. So despite the fact that this was a drier area, there actually was a lot of growing happening at the time because they came when there had been more rain than usual. There were artesian water sources there, which means that, so artesian water is groundwater that bubbles up easily to the surface because of pressure underground. Obviously, this is a much easier way to get water than you can typically find in drier places. And so wells were constructed with ease. Frank worked odd jobs for local ranchers, typically white men, to save money to bring Ellen and his children to him. It took nearly three years for him to bring his family to this area. This region was also, or this particular area that they selected was also important because they were also avoiding hostility from white residents in, in Roswell and other nearby areas. So they were really trying to have their own pocket of safety because they could not avoid racism. As I have said earlier, cannot avoid racism. In 1903, Frank and 13 other Black men signed Articles of Incorporation to create Blackdom. The group that helped to incorporate the town formed the Blackdom Townsite Company, which had $10,000 in combined assets, which is nothing to sneeze at at the time. That's a good amount of money. Once this was established, Frank advertised to Black people in newspapers and people started coming in droves. He had advertised it as a haven for Black folks. The town wasn't officially incorporated until 1921, but families were arriving between 1902 and the 1920s. Blackton had struggles like many prairie towns. Winds were incredibly strong at times, and folks were cut away from the other members of their family in the South. So there was a lot of just missing people, and they had to be very self-sufficient. Winters could also be very harsh. There is said to have been an estimated 150 people who lived in the community, including one Maddie Moore Wilson, who owned 640 acres of land. I don't even know what I would do with so much land. But as much as there are some weird dynamics and conversations around the ownership of land, I think it is still pretty amazing that Maddie Moore Wilson was a Black woman at this time who owned that much land. At the same time, I've also read that by 1908, 300 people settled and farmed in Blackdom. So the numbers around the total population aren't quite consistent, is what I found in my research. Regardless, it was a small town, obviously, 150, 300, tiny little town. M many residents lived on farms, but later developed a small village, which included a U.S. post office starting in 1912, a store, a new church, a pumping plant, and an office building. Everybody went to church, is what I've read. 
There was also an emphasis on preparing children, not just for the 20th century, but also for the 21st century. And education was at the heart of that. Education was so important, not only to Frank, who was the foundation of the town, but everybody who lived there. They saw that as the doorway to a better future. And at the time, the community school was initially housed in the church. Juneteenth was a big holiday. And I'm gonna have an episode talking about Juneteenth and its important in importance in Texas. But essentially this is an emancipation holiday based on the date in 1965 when the last enslaved people in Galveston, Texas were informed by Union soldiers that they were free. Technically, they had been set free after the Emancipation Proclamation had been issued in 1863, but of course, nobody had told them this. The, the town members invited Native American and white residents to join the Juneteenth celebration, so they made it this lovely multiracial celebration of emancipation. It was like their 4th of July, which I think is a conversation that we're having these days, um, this day of independence for Black Americans, specifically. For some time, Blackdom folks were living a good life. It was difficult to improve the land per the requirements of the Homestead Act because it got expensive and because the landscape could be so harsh. Persistence kept the town going for a while, but it could be really difficult. Accidents could kill livestock and crops. And then the weather began to turn. In 1916, worms invaded the crops and the summer rain and winter snow disappeared. And suddenly, at the same time, the artesian wells were drying up. Men would have to work on white-owned farms nearby to get the money to make improvements on their lands so that they could fulfill the requirements of the Homestead Act. On top of this, the declining rainfall and decline in crop prices after World War I was also a negative impact on the farmers of Blacktum. Because of everything that happened, from the accidents and the weather and the wells drying up, a lot of people began to leave. Oil was discovered in 1919 and remaining residents started Blackdom Oil Company, the single largest investor again was Maddie Moore Wilson. Remember, she is the woman who owns 640 acres of land. And her wealth came from being a Black brothel owner in Roswell. The New York-based National Exploration Company came to drill wells in the area, which brought in a lot of money for the town's residents helping the town to become incorporated in 1921. Despite the wealth that the oil company brought in, this did not change all of the other things that nature was doing at the time. It didn't make it any easier to live in Blackdom, unfortunately. And so 
people continued to leave and the population continued to just dwindle. The post office officially closed in 1919, followed by the population just continuing to empty out throughout the 20s. Frank and Ella Boyer filed for a plat to incorporate the town in 1921, but by that time, the town was nearly gone. Many residents had just left due to the droughts. Residents who remained in Black Dim continued making money off of oil wells until 1929. 1929, of course, was the start of the Great Depression. And that was the final nail in the coffin for Blackdom, New Mexico. Town leaders dissolved Blackdom in 1930. And it's important to note that nature caused the end of Blackdom, not people. Violence and so many other infrastructural discriminatory actions have been the end of many Black towns, but unfortunately, nature can do that too. And when you don't have the resources to counteract any of the things that are happening in a natural way, what do you do? What do you do when all your wells dried up and you're just tired of trying to fight with nature to have a good living? At the end of the day, that doesn't sound like a good living. Frank's home was foreclosed on before he left and he moved on to another part of New Mexico to start the town of Vado. And that is where the end of the story of Frank is. As far as I know, I will have to kind of see if I can find out more about Vado and if there's any evidence of his living there. Some of the best records of Blackdom were kept in a postal account book from 1912 to 1919, which is now housed at the National Postal Museum in Washington, DC. Additionally, there are many Boyer descendants today. Other prominent families of Blackdom are included on the National Park Service website for the town. So I advise you, if you are doing some genealogy, to look at the list to see if you have any connections to them. They have all their, their names listed. Blackdom is now called a ghost town as some of the ruins can still be found, like old foundations and frames of the homes, there's also a commemorative plaque. So when you go, if you go to New Mexico, if you go around Roswell, you know, Roswell has a big tourism thing happening because I, I imagine it's a nice town, but it is known for like these UFO sightings and things like that. So it's got a lot of tourists. If you are going to New Mexico for any reason, especially if you're going to Roswell, I would encourage you to check out the commemorative plaque at um, Blackdom and kind of take a look around the, the frames of the homes, the ghost town itself, and just kind of get a sense of what it was like to live there, especially at that time and as a Black person in a new place, a completely different place from the South. As somebody who now lives in the South 
and has just visited the desert, I can tell you that I feel the drastic difference in that brief visit that I had. So these were some really brave people that took a risk to make something happen in their lives, to make a community, to make a home. It had to be extremely hard. It also may not have been, uh, there, there may not have been any thought. It may have just been, I need to get out of here. It's dangerous. And I need to get out of the South. And I don't want to go to the North. I haven't heard good things about that either. And everybody knows, I think if you grew up in the States, there's so much mythology around the American West and the way it's framed was just as this place of hope and dreams where you could make your dreams come true. And black people were absolutely a part of that, even if that is not what we usually see represented in the media and in the stories around the American West. And so I am so happy that we've been able to talk about Blackdom New Mexico. And I'm so excited to be able to talk more about Black folks who, who went out West because those stories are there. They're very powerful. And I hope it inspires you to look more into the pioneering spirit that Black folks had, still have. And I hope that we also hold the complexity of being a Black person who was moving on to indigenous land where people had recently been displaced. All of that complexity, I think, is important to hold as well. Okay, y'all, it is plant medicine time. As always, I love to introduce some plant medicine into these episodes because this is about healing, healing trauma, the trauma of displacement, the trauma of violence, the trauma of the memory of all of these things. And I want to remind you, I am not a doctor. I am not an herbalist. I encourage you I implore you to talk to a doctor or an herbalist or both for more information, especially if you're on any kind of medication or have any um, kind of medical condition. Medications and herbs can interact with one another and be harmful, so be careful. And there can always be side effects from herbs as well. That being said, if something sounds interesting to you, I'll share resources in the show notes so you can learn more about it. This week's plant medicine is creosote bush. And obviously this is not found in the book that I've been using in many episodes, Working the Roots, which is about the plant medicine of the African-American tradition. Obviously, in the West, there's not many plants in the African-American tradition. It makes sense that hundreds of years of that tradition was, was developed in the South, was not developed in the West. 
I wouldn't be surprised though, if folks in Blackdom were trying to grow familiar medicinal plants along with their crops when they moved to Blackdom um, with, I imagine, maybe not as, as much success as they had in the South. The Latin name of Creosote bush is Larea tridentata. And, and a common alternative name is greasewood. It is a medium-sized shrub with tiny flowers and fuzzy seeds. And it's common in the Mojave, Sonoran, and Chihuahuan Desert. Chihuahuan Desert. <laughs> like Chihuahua, the dog. Chihuahuan Desert. They have a very deep root system to access water, which is very important. And it has been common, commonly used amongst the indigenous people and Mexican settlers. Indigenous people used it for fixing arrow points and mending pottery. As far as its medicinal use, it's been used for colds, chest infections or lung congestion, intestinal discomfort, cramps associated with delayed menstruation, consumption, cancer, nausea, wounds, poisons, swelling due to poor circulation, dandruff, body odor, distemper, and post-nasal drip. So I've seen um, in my research that there are places you can get creosote bush. Um, I've seen it as a being sold as a bundle, like something you can use to smudge, which I think is also a practice that can be considered medicinal rather than consuming it, is just burning it and allowing the plants um, scent and the smoke to fill in the space. I would also say that I've seen it as sold as like um, kind of like an oil or like a tincture. And so I would say, do your research, talk to the people you need to talk to if you are interested in it. I would also say if you are living in this area and you want to explore the plant medicine, I feel like that's more appropriate. You know, I would say, um, I would say that with all the plants that I'm introducing to you, which is why I think I try to pinpoint a plant in the region. My reason for doing that is for emphasizing the importance of getting to know your local plants. And while if something sounds really good to you and you want to explore it more and you're not in the region, I would encourage you to do that. I'd also encourage you to just look around and learn about the plants in your home that could be used for medicinal purposes and build a relationship with them and learn about the indigenous use, preferably from folks who are indigenous in the land that you're on. And I would say, I personally don't think I'm going to go out and get myself some creosote bush because I don't live in New Mexico. I do live in New Orleans though, and there's lots of plants here that I can build a relationship with. But I would say that I'm really always excited to see what people have tapped into in their, in their lands and found to be medicine. And I love that this has been used by the indigenous people. It's also well known by um, medicinal pract practitioners and Mexic Mexican traditions. And um, I imagine whether the folks of Blackdom used it or not, 
they probably saw it all over the place and may have used it maybe not for medicine, but they may have used it for other reasons, or they may have started to adapt and use it for medicine along with other familiar things that they may have brought with them. So that's my plant medicine of the week. And while I have not shared any side effects, I do encourage you to look up any potential side effects if you think that you are interested in trying it. All right, that is it for week five, episode five, rather. If you are from any of the places I spotlight or know any good stories, share them with me via email at unsettledlivespod at gmail.com or at unsettledlivespod on Instagram. You can also share your reactions to these stories and how you felt learning something new. All right, everyone, I will talk to you again in two weeks. Take care of yourselves. Bye.